This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We Are Not Slaves, State Violence, Coerced Labor, and Prisoners' Rights in Postwar America by Robert T. Chase. In the early 20th century, the brutality of Southern prisons became a national scandal. Prisoners toiled in grueling, violent conditions while housed in crude dormitories on what were effectively slave plantations. This system persisted until the 1940s when, led by Texas, southern states adopted northern prison design reforms. Texas presented the reforms to the public as modern, efficient, and disciplined. Inside prisons, however, the transition to penitentiary cells only made the endemic violence more secretive intensifying the labor division that privileged some prisoners with the power to accelerate state-orchestrated brutality and the internal sex trade. Reformers' efforts had only made things worse. Now it was up to the prisoners to fight for change. Drawing from three decades of legal documents compiled by prisoners, Robert T. Chase narrates the struggle to change prison from within. Prisoners forged an alliance with the NAACP to contest the constitutionality of Texas prisons. Behind bars, a prisoner coalition of Chicano movement and black power organizations publicized their deplorable conditions as slaves of the state and initiated a prison-made civil rights revolution and labor protest movement. These insurgents won epical legal victories that declared conditions in many southern prisons to be cruel and unusual, but their movement was overwhelmed by the increasing militarization of the prison system and empowerment of white supremacist gangs that, together, declared war on prison organizers. Told from the vantage point of the prisoners themselves, this book weaves together untold but devastatingly important truths from the histories of labor, civil rights, and politics in the United States as it narrates the transition from prison plantations of the past to the mass incarceration of today. We are not slaves. State violence, coerced labor, and prisoners' rights in post-war America by Robert T. Chase. Out now from University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I can't believe that I subject my guests to 90 minutes plus of this sort of questioning every week and that they handle it so well, because I, for one, found the whole experience rather daunting. This week, I'm the one being interviewed, and my guest host, Astra Taylor, is asking the questions, and we're talking about, or what we were talking about when she interviewed me in a New York studio, was my new book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. I'll leave it at that and keep this introduction to my book brief, since I spend a lot of the rest of this episode talking about my book. But I do have book tour and other dates to tell you about, and I'll put links in the show notes where I have them. 
My book tour starts off tomorrow in Brooklyn on Friday, January 24th, 7 p.m. at the Verso Loft, where I'll be in conversation with Aziz Rana. On January 27th, I'm doing a live dig interview here in Providence with Kianga Yamada-Taylor. The next day, January 28th, Kianga will join Linda Sarsour at a Students for Bernie kickoff rally at the Columbus Theater in Providence. Then, on January 31st, I'm here in Providence talking about my book with Kevin Escudero at Riff Raff Books. Then, on February 5th, I'll be in Madison, Connecticut, right near New Haven, at R.J. Julia Booksellers. On February 24th, I'm back in my beloved Philadelphia at the Wooden Shoe. February 26th, I'll be in my hometown, Washington, D.C., at Solid State Books. February 28th, Baltimore at Red Emma's. March 4th, Boston at Trident Books. On March 11th, I'm doing a book event in New Orleans at Octavia Books with Theoria Frankos on both my book and her co-authored book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Then I'll be heading to Texas. So far, my confirmed dates are March 17th in Austin at Monkey Wrench Books and March 18th in Dallas at Deep Vellum Books. Stay tuned for events in Houston, San Antonio, probably McAllen, and more dates in the Southwest and on the West Coast. And then after this spring, I will be going to other places too, but I don't know anything really about that yet. Okay, so briefly before we get started. This podcast can only exist as my day job, and could also only subsidize me spending three years writing this book into the wee hours of the morning after I was done with my day job because many of you listeners support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Now, some of you listening now have been listening for a while, regularly. You like the show a lot, and you depend on it for the smartest and most in-depth left-wing analysis available in audio form. And you keep meaning to contribute, but you haven't done so yet. Now is a great time to do it, because those of you who can afford to support this podcast, doing so is what allows us to make the podcast available to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. That's why we pay well nothing. Plus, if you contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you a free left-wing book in the mail as a thank you. One of those books that you can choose is my own, All-American Nativism. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you. Okay, here's me being interviewed on All-American Nativism by Astra Taylor, the author, most recently, of Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. The director of the film, What is Democracy? And a co-founder of The Debt Collective. Dan Denver, welcome to The Dig. Uh, Thanks for having me. I've heard good things about the show. (laughs) I think you'll like it. I thought we might begin with the book's title, All-American Nativism, because it has a bit of a double meaning. In one sense, there's this idea of something or someone, you know, being all or authentically American. But in another sense, nativism, as you show, 
has been central to the American project since the beginning. So there hasn't ever been an America without nativism. So could you begin by talking about the title and what you're trying to do with the book and also just unpacking what you mean by the word nativism? Yeah, I think that first and foremost, the book is a response to the commonplace liberal idea that Trump is just a totally radical departure from American politics and history as we had known it, when in fact, nativism, like you say, has been a key organizing feature of American politics and political economy since its inception and before it was even the United States when it was a British settler colonial project. And there was this sense because of the brazenness with which Trump articulated anti-immigrant politics, calling Mexicans rapists and criminals, calling for a complete and total shutdown of Muslim immigration or because he put his nativism in such brazen terms that it was that there was something un-American about it. And so while there is a lot that's new about Trump, what I try to show in the book is that, in fact, it was bipartisan establishment politics, as we've known them for decades, that created a lot of the language that he used, that developed the policies and institutions that were already persecuting immigrants, that were already militarizing the border, that had already created this massive system of mass incarceration intertwined with this mass deportation machine, that all of those things had been put into place and that made Trump both politically and in terms of the, the, the concrete repressive apparatus that he's, that he's now wielding that made that all possible. And so in that sense, I'm saying it's, it's all American. Then what do I mean by nativism? That's a good way for me to get into the longer history, like before recent decades. A lot of my book is focused on post-1965, particularly the 90s to the present. But I also go back to the first Europeans coming to North America, um, which is a bit before the 1990s. And the reason that's important to understand is because settler colonialism from the get-go was a a racial population politics, even though what, what race and what whiteness was changed a lot over time. So nativism, which is a distinctly U.S. term for, for for xenophobia, I think is particularly helpful to to make that connection between settler, the longer settler colonial context, and the anti-immigrant politics of more recent decades, because it forces us to answer the question of how did did settler colonialist people, descendants of of European settlers, how did they become natives and then nativists? Yes. And so after Trump was elected, there was this reaction among liberals who you would think would know the history that Trump was not us. That was the big retort. This is not us. This is not who we are. And your book is one big deconstruction of that mythos. Right. Or this is not normal. This is not really hated that one. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to explode that? That I mean, it seems well-meaning. Right. It's a rejection. Right. Definitely. Yeah. On the one hand, yeah, I don't want to be too much of a jerk. I mean, on the one hand, it is, it's good that so many people think that Trump separating families at the border is bad because it's, you know, monstrous. But if we want to actually get at how this has come about, we need to get at that to not only beat Trump, but uproot and defeat the politics and the economics that made Trump possible. And so, Obama, for example, when the big 
big surge in, in Central American migration began in 2014, when that really hit its first peak under Obama, he detained families together. And basically the only reason, the main reason Trump was separating families was because a court had barred Obama from detaining families together. And how did Trump separate families? He used a law that had been on the books since 1929 that had made unauthorized border crossings a misdemeanor offense. Why did that become a misdemeanor offense in 1929? Well, because beginning in in 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, the U.S. government had begun to systematically bar Asians from the country and Mexicans began to fill the gap. And the criminalization of unauthorized border crossings was a compromise between xenophobes in Congress and elsewhere and growers in the Southwest who demanded Mexican labor. So everywhere we look, every single thing that Trump has done, he's done it with a tool in some sense fashioned by these predecessors that we think of as as conventional and, and normal and at least sort of okay compared to Trump. I mean, we see this with like the rehabilitation of of George Bush these days, I mean, let alone Obama. But but Bush, I mean, Bush, I mean, it's like, God. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because historians often do this denaturalizing move, right, where they say this assumption you have today actually wasn't always this way, right? Like our conception of the First Amendment was very different during the New Deal period, for example. But you're saying this thing that you're assuming is an aberration is a, you know, uh, a break from normalcy. Actually, hold on. It always was in a sense, this fucked up. Yeah, I think uh, you might be recalling a line from my my introduction where it's a thing that, that analysts and scholars often do, and I think for good reason, especially, you know, during the 90s when it seemed like, as some people declared, history was over and and everything that was seemed so normal that it was an important analytical exercise to say, actually, all of this stuff that's normal is built on these extremely violent and racist foundations, et cetera. But now, we, since 2016, for the at least the majority of the country that, that opposes Trump, we live in this country that suddenly seems foreign to us and so weird and bizarre. And what I'm trying to do in the book is say, well, actually, if what Trump is doing ups- upsets you and you find it distasteful and monstrous and immoral, then... Maybe we should have always found the politics and economics that made Trump possible equally reprehensible. Exactly. So your book has four chapters, scarcity, security, empire, reaction. And maybe we'll begin with empire because that's where you go and mention the Declaration of Independence, which we're taught in schools is this complaint against tyranny. But one of the big complaints that the settlers launch is that King George is preventing immigration and preventing settlers from moving westward and stealing indigenous territory. And you point out, and this is a question that's, of course, near and dear to me in my work on democracy, that, you know, as we move from a monarchy to a democracy, this question of who the demos is, is really key. Because the question is, well, who is we the people that are going to be ruling ourselves? And the American demos has always been based on racial domination and the dispossession of racialized others. So, I mean, can you talk about how this discomforting history was actually sort of papered over by this idea of the nation of immigrants. That was, you know, one way of kind of bypassing this historical truth that's so unsettling. Um, And how that cover up in a way is breaking apart in the Trump era. 
I think that's one of the most fascinating things that I discovered researching the book and also preparing for past interviews on a certain podcast, <laughs> uh, reading works like by Matthew Fry Jacobson uh, and May Nye, is uh, that this this idea that we live in a nation of immigrants, this kind of multicultural plural conception of the American people is relatively new and that through the 19th century, much of the 19th century, there was much more of a, people had a much more straightforward self-conception, conception of themselves as settlers, as people moving out west and and, and settling the, the territory of an expanding American empire moving west. And then it was only in the late 19th century that the notion, the, the word immigrant even really came into heavy use. And uh, Donna Gabaccia has found that that it was mostly used in a negative way to describe unwanted people, migrants moving to the U.S. who didn't fit the the settler mode, like Chinese people. And so you only really have the idea of the nation of immigrants consolidating amidst the the, the repeal of these extremely restrictive immigration laws in 1965. And so... You have the this period beginning in 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then over the next few decades, more and more Asian nationalities are are barred from the country. And then in 1921, you have the beginning of the national origins quotas, which basically take the the so-called racial makeup, national makeup of the U.S. as it was, and says, okay, we're going to accord visas based on that, basically to preserve the racial makeup of the of the country as it was. And that's the law till 19. 19- 65, this explicitly, unabashedly white supremacist population politics, that is our immigration law until 1965. And part of the liberal story of overcoming that law is this idea that we're a nation of immigrants, which is part of white ethnics, people whose families are from Italy, Greece, Poland, wherever. That's part of them becoming part of the, the we the american people. And so that's that's an expansion of who the people is, but in doing so, it obscures what's actually been happening up until that point. And this law is basically it's part of that civil rights movement. There are are good progressive impulses behind it, just like with civil civil rights laws that are passed, but there's also a sense that the US needs to get rid of these laws because it makes the US look really bad amidst the cold war as countries are decolonizing all over the world and we're in the US is in a battle with the Soviet Union for their affections. So having laws that say, we don't like people from your country and are not letting them in for racist reasons, that doesn't play well. So they get rid of that. And then we're left with this idea of the nation of immigrants. And the long run ramifications of that idea are really intense and complex, but it creates this idea that that immigration law is kind of liberal and racially neutral and that and that we are an open country and have always been so even though that's not the case and so there's a right way to come and then you're welcome you're part of this country and then there's a wrong way to come those are so-called quote illegal immigrants and it's this nation of immigrants idea the flip side of it is those people who violate that compact and come the wrong way and that and we're going to get into this I'm sure a lot more later so I'll stop now but that that's kind of where the demonization and criminalization of Mexican immigrants really takes off. 
Yes. And I want us to really go back to this question of what happened with immigration policy in the 1960s, because it's so pivotal and it's something that I didn't know anything about until I was researching my book either. So, but first, I think there's something that you touched on here that I just want to flesh out. And it's also central to your argument. Early on in the book, you write, political debates over immigration often involve competing ideas about how to solve a problem. But migration is not self-evidently a problem. And this is key. I mean, because we accept this. It's a problem that has to be solved. And therefore, there have to be solutions proposed. You mentioned that this framework can actually be traced to the Progressive Era Dillingham Commission, which was this 29,000-page report published in 1911 that that first treated immigration as a problem to be solved by government. So I guess, you know, my question really simplistically is, what is the problem with framing immigration as a problem? And why did this framework emerge at that juncture? That is a very good question. Just to to emphasize that immigration is not self-evidently or automatically a problem I'll point to the 19th century and before when the U.S. was an expanding settler colonial empire and white migrants from from Europe weren't considered the problem by and large. They were by and large considered the solution because this government, as Paul Freimer shows brilliantly in his book, Building an American Empire, that the government had a very clear and comprehensive policy of racial population politics carefully expanding its Western frontier and dispossessing indigenous land in a way that depended upon there being enough white migrants to hold the land. It was like immigration was a military operation. And so white immigration, with some notable exceptions, including pretty serious crackdowns by, by certain states, especially Massachusetts, against Irish immigrants, but by and large, immigrants were were what one scholar calls I think uh, either Americans in waiting or citizens in waiting. Non-citizens could often vote. The people were defined by their European settler status. And so immigration was just was not a problem in the way that it seems so automatically to be today and in recent decades. It starts to become a problem when other migrants from Asia, from Southern Europe, Jews, start to pose a threat to the white settler ideal. And the Dillingham Commission is interesting. I don't spend a lot of time on it in in my book. It's taking place in a context in the in, in the nineteen teens when when there is where restriction and and exclusion on of Asian migrants is consolidating, and then the anti immigrant movement at the time is sort of looking to to disfavored Europeans as their next target. And the Dillingham Commission is this massive congressional effort. I think it's maybe still the largest or one of the largest re- congressional research efforts ever that basically just studies in the kind of progressive era, social science, expert worshiping manner, studying immigration. And so of the many things it does, it defines immigration as a problem. And the solution, and though the Dillingham Commission was not itself like explicitly eugenicist, the politics of the time were deeply informed by eugenics and the solution to the to this problem that faced white Americans was were these national origins quota laws of the 1920s. And so every time throughout American history that we see anti-immigrant politics ascendant, we can see also see concretely how immigration was made into a problem in the first place. Another key example of that is 
the 1990s, which is really when the anti-immigrant politics that we're living with today really emerges into the center of national politics. And that begins in California, which has the highest undocumented immigrant population in the country at the time. There was a recession at the end of the Cold War with like the downturn of the aerospace industry, but it doesn't self-evidently become a problem of immigration. There had been anti-immigrant activists in California pushing for anti-immigrant politics throughout the 80s, and they'd had trouble gaining a foothold. What happens is it becomes politically useful, both Republicans and Democrats. The governor, Pete Wilson, ends up taking this, this referendum on the ballot that's initially gets almost no public attention, Proposition 187, which is on the ballot in 1994. It denies social services, including public education, to undocumented immigrants. And Pete Wilson uses that and uses the scapegoating of, of immigrants for all of the problems of California, of, of, of illegal immigrants for all of California's problems, and uses that to, to win re-election. What's interesting, I think a lot of people don't know, is that Democrats played a key role in this. Dianne Feinstein, then, then recently elected as the, the Democratic senator from California, she had just lost the gubernatorial race to Pete Wilson, she was the first to demagogue on immigrants. And according to an LA Times article I read at the time, they, they clearly stated that it was she who provided cover for everyone else to start immigrant bashing. But it wasn't just Dianne Feinstein. It was also, very critically, the Clinton administration, who just months before the vote on Proposition 187 in 1994, implemented something called Operation Gatekeeper, a massive militarization of the border in San Diego. So all of these people, not just the crazy anti-immigrant people on the far right, but establishment Democrats and Republicans as well, were framing immigration as a problem. And even though the Clinton administration and Dianne Feinstein and, Cal and many California Democrats opposed Proposition 187, they, alongside their right-wing conservative opponents, had defined immigration as a problem. So it's not a surprise that voters who were convinced that immigration was a problem chose to vote for Prop 187, which was the purportedly, you know, tough solution. Right. And the title of your first chapter, Scarcity, points to what the real problem might be, right? There's a displacement onto the issue of immigration as a way to not talk about questions of distribution of resources, opportunities, et cetera, right? Um, it's a way of avoiding talking about the real underlying economic problems. Is that part of why you begin there? There's this amazing memo written by Rahm Emanuel sometime, I believe in 1996, maybe 1995, around then, to, to Bill Clinton that says basically to, to protect legal cross-border trade with Mexico, we have to crack down on illegal cross-border trade, like e.g. narcotics and people. And so that memo makes, makes pretty explicit that this complex but pervasive anxiety in the 1990s about the, the increasing globalization of the economy, the role of the U.S. in a post-Cold War geopolitical order, that all of this is becoming fixed on immigrants as the scapegoat. And a lot of this is revolving, revolving around, around NAFTA, 
Yeah. I think we should go back. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go back a bit to set the stage for the way California then set the stage for current immigration politics. So you mentioned Chinese exclusion. That's law of the land. In the early 20th century, European workers are heavily restricted. And as you actually already said, that increases the demand for Mexican labor, especially in agriculture, but other fields as well. And the establishment is fine with that, but what they, what they don't want is Mexican citizens. And so you quote that Dillingham Commission we've already mentioned that said, in the case of the Mexican, he is less desirable as a citizen than as a laborer. So could you take us through maybe from the, the Great Depression into those immigration policy reforms of the 1960s? What was the dynamic along the Mexico-U.S. border and how were the conditions created for the anti-immigrant populist suburban reaction that we would then see in the 90s? The, the Dillingham Commission line that you quote, that the, that the Mexican is less desirable as a citizen than a laborer, is really interesting because it exemplifies this commonplace idea at the time that Mexicans did not fit neatly within immigration politics as they were understood. There were plenty of of nativists, of restrictionists at the time who did, who, who were extremely worried about Mexican workers coming into the country, but they were overpowered by the the growers in a booming Southwest, which it's important to remember was, was kind of newly added to the United States at that point. It had been seized from, from Mexico in the mid 19th century during the Mexican American war. But the yeah the growers' interest in in Mexican cheap labor won out over the restrictionists who still won a lot. They the nativists got to bar most Asians and sharply restrict Southern and Eastern Europeans. And the compromise was that the growers got to bring in Mexican workers. And the idea was that this wasn't so much of a problem because Mexicans would just be workers. They would come and work and then go home. So. That was the compromise. That compromise immediately went into crisis when the Great Depression, and there were massive numbers of Mexicans repatriated repatriated to to Mexico, both in in terms of of forced deportations and just just coercion. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans were were driven out in this so-called repatriation campaign, both both through de- deportations and voluntary departures that were coerced by the fact that there was a, quote, repatriation campaign. But then comes World War II, there's still labor demand. And so something called the Bracero Program is created, which is done by agreement between the Mexican and U.S. government and with, with growers in, in the West. And that's an enormous program, 4.6 million Temporary visas are signed between 1942 and 1964. And so this really institutionalizes Mexican labor migration as a long-running feature of the U.S. And there are other moments of panic. Like in 1954, under Eisenhower, he hires this guy named Lieutenant General Joseph Swing to run the INS. And he launches what's known as Operation Wetback, which a lot of people know because it has that grotesquely racist name and also because Trump complimented it during one of the Republican debates. But that, like a lot of border enforcement over the decades, has been more about performance than actually closing the border to Mexican, 
to Mexicans. What it was actually about was what so-called, quote, drying out wets, pushing more or less, as Kelly Lytle Hernandez shows, disciplining growers to use the Bracero program and stop using undocumented immigrants because the whole Bracero period was characterized by all of these Bracero workers, but also tons of people still coming without authorization because you don't have to pay a head tax, you don't have to deal with the border. And so Mexican migration has become this major institutionalized piece of a kind of integrated Mexican-American pinational economy. And then the Bracero program ends in 1964 for some good reasons. A lot of labor groups for non-xenophobic reasons opposed it because it was incredibly abusive as guest worker programs often are. The problem is there were no authorized, new authorized legal ways for Mexicans to come. In fact, in 1976, the government imposes first ever caps on migration from from countries from the Western Hemisphere. So suddenly, at this very same moment that the 1965 Hart-Celler Act is getting rid of explicitly racist immigration law, this huge institutionalized Mexican labor migration that's been going on for decades and decades and decades, its legal avenues for entry are radically narrowed, but it continues, and so it's criminalized. And this is the moment when you get hardened into stone this idea of illegal versus legal Mexican immigration, right? I mean, why this moment is so pivotal is you have, under an imperfect program, but you have the Bracero program, which facilitates the back and forth movement of millions of people. And then you have a move to an ostensibly colorblind system that says, okay, each country, no matter what their historical relationship with the United States, gets a quota of- Of like 20,000. Of 20,000. A year. Immigrants a year. Whether you're Belgium or Mexico- it doesn't matter. Right. And this, and so it's such an interesting moment because on the one hand, that legislation did have huge implications and changed who immigrated to the United States. But along the U.S.-Mexico border, it created a humanitarian crisis. Yeah. It radi- the Hart-Celler Act radically diversified U.S. legal immigration. In 1965, the, the year of the Hart-Celler Act, when the quotas were abolished, the U.S. admitted 296,697 immigrants. By 1973, that was up to 400,063. Authorized immigration from Asia grew by 500%, while immigration from Northern and Western Europe declined by two-thirds. So the demographics of legal immigration change dramatically. But at the same time, Mexican immigration, which has a very particular history in the U.S. and had been institutionalized as a matter of law by the U.S. and Mexican governments is suddenly criminalized. It's a pre-existing migration system that's, that's in place, and it's suddenly just declared illegal. And so as concern is developed around, quote, illegal immigration in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then exploding in the 90s, Mexicans become the face of that. But the key thing is not, what's new is not Mexicans coming, it's that their arrival is suddenly declared illegal. So, you know, something else was happening in the 1960s when these policies were being reformed. The end of the Bracero program, the passage of Hart Cellar, but there's also the emergence of the environmental movement. You mentioned the book, The Population Bomb, which was published in 1968, was a bestseller. So there were economic trends pushing against foreign workers, and then also in this 
twisted way, ecological ones, um, even if they weren't legitimate. That was the way that they were being discussed in these kind of neo-Malthusian terms. You mentioned the famed ecologist Garrett Hardin, whose 1968 article, I'm sure all the listeners have heard of, The Tragedy of the Commons. I mean, he's truly a despicable asshole. Yeah, he's a he's a racist. But that article has become just shorthand for why we can't live in a nice society, because communally held things don't work. <laughs> But that's not really entirely I mean, this is what a very about. troubling history, right? <laughs> that environmental concerns helped crystallize this nativist resurgence. And at this moment in time, why is it important for us to look back and acknowledge this history? It's one of the most surprising of many surprising things I encountered researching this book. In not so long before this, this period, in the earlier 1960s, there's this sort of like liberal utopian sense that the U.S. can can do anything. LBJ's idea of, of, of a great society, he's talking about it in these incredibly lofty terms of, quote, an order of plenty for all of our people directed to, quote, elevate our national life and to advance the quality of our American civilization. The sense that, um, that poverty can be ended alongside Jim Crow, but not so long after that all falls apart in part because the Vietnam War is a total murderous disaster, in part in the 70s because stagflation hits and that is responded to with a vicious assault on the American labor movement and the onset of neoliberalism and the dismantling of the New Deal order. And after the sense of, the sense of endless possibility is supplanted by a sense that there are extremely hard limits on what is possible. And this is very much true with the sort of nascent environmental movement, which is in many ways, though of course not entirely, articulated around concerns of overpopulation, which you still hear people talk about sometimes today, So, but not, not so much like then. It's hard to emphasize how central the book The Population Bomb was in 1968, just this idea that out of control human breeding would lead to mass famine. I mean, today, looking at, at climate change and understanding that it's, that it's fossil fuel companies and the wealthy and not poor people in Africa who are emitting the carbon that is catapulting us to catastrophe, it seems insane to blame third world fertility for environmental problems, but that was the general sense of the time. And so this guy, Garrett Hardin, is, is a big part of that. And his idea in Tragedy of the Commons, which is people probably know the basics of it in terms of this idea that if every herdsman grazed their cattle in a common pasture, they, they would be acting in their rational self-interest by maximizing their use of that pasture, but ultimately undercut the, the existence of that common to the ruin of all. That's his idea. As a quick aside, there are many, many examples, as people like Eleanor Ostrom have showed, of people very effectively using common resources without destroying them. So he's wrong on that because it's a thought experiment rather than actually using any sort of empirical analysis. But the upshot of his, his article is the argument that, quote, freedom to breed will bring ruin to all. He's obsessed with this. And then he expands on that in 1974 with this article called Lifeboat Ethics, which is basically a response to 
a more universalist environmentalist conception, this idea of spaceship Earth, this idea that our planet is a spaceship, a biosphere that we're all connected on and thus all have have to rely upon each other to take care of our Well, people had home. only seen a picture of the whole Earth in 1968, so this was also a kind of novel conception or something that was vividly driven home by that, right? Yeah, it was uh, the astronaut Billy Anders had taken that, the famous photograph, um, I forget what it's called, Earth Earth something rising or something, but it was it was remarkable, this idea that we could finally look at ourselves from space, that we all are here together, this one fragile planet, it's all we've got, we've got to take care of it. Garrett Hardin pushes back on that emphatically and writes, quote, environmentalists use the metaphor of the Earth as a spaceship in trying to persuade countries, industries, and people to stop wasting and polluting our natural resources. He continues, the spaceship metaphor can be dangerous when used by misguided idealists to justify suicidal policies for sharing our resources through uncontrolled immigration and foreign aid. Metaphorically, each rich, rich nation amounts to a lifeboat full of comparatively rich people. The poor of the world are in other, much more crowded lifeboats. Continuously, so to speak, the poor fall out of their lifeboats and swim for a while in the water outside, hoping to be admitted to a rich lifeboat, or, in some other way, to benefit from the goodies on board. What should passengers on the rich lifeboat do? <laughs> he, d- he doesn't really explicitly answer that question, but the the answer he's pushing is pretty pretty obvious. And so it's this idea of scarcity that for environmentalists like Garrett Hardin are articulated in ecological terms, but are also responding to a general sense of scarcity that come to define the politics of the new nativist movement that we're living with today at the beginning, but they, but, but they soon disappear, mostly. I think it's important to acknowledge, as, as you do, and the reason you keep returning to it is because, well, the population dimension might fall off that Malthusian dimension, that sense of existential threat and wanting to be on an armed lifeboat is going to stay with us the present day. And we're at a juncture where we can, we can imagine it intensifying, right? So it's this sort of existential pivot that feels really significant. Yeah. Yeah. So initially the, the threat is defined as an ecological one. Most importantly, the reason this backstory is most important is because like literally the guy who founds the modern nativist movement who's very close to Garrett Hardin and Paul Ehrlich is this guy, John Tanton, who's an ophthalmologist from Michigan who just becomes, and he just died last year, this incredible powerhouse who in 1970, he becomes the president of zero population growth, which is a populationist group founded in response to the population bomb. And then, at least reportedly, they're not on board for him turning it into a wholesale anti-immigrant organization. And so in 1979, he founds the Federation for American Immigration Reform, which becomes the the flagship of what are today a ton of extremely well-funded by Cordelia May Scaife and others, anti-immigrant organizations, the Center for Amer- Immigration Studies, Numbers USA, U.S. English, all, all of these groups that he had some role in founding and creating this whole web, he began as an environmentalist nativist. Since that time, immigrants have consistently been portrayed as a threat. That's the core way that nativist politics works. But what sort of threat they pose has changed in pretty interesting and revealing ways over the years. So the initial one is ecological. Lo and behold, that does not catch fire. What catches fire is first in the 1980s that immigrants pose 
a linguistic threat, which was a very savvy way for the nativists to make their first move into into the national political debate. Because what the what the English only movie movement did in the 1980s was simultaneously appeal to racist anti-immigrant sentiment while also working within a liberal multicultural pluralist framework and argue that the country was becoming balkanized and that they weren't anti-immigrant. They wanted to help immigrants learn English. So they were able to do both at the same time. And then in the 1990s, when Prop 187 explodes, what's it centered on? It's centered on the idea that immigrants are a fiscal threat, that they're using taxpayer resources, and also that they're a criminal threat, which fits in perfectly with Bill Clinton and congressional Republicans' war on crime. And then in the 2000s, with the war on terror, immigrants become also a terrorist threat. And so all these things are always building on each other. They, n- none of the prior emphases disappear. And by the time we get to Trump, immigrants are like literally an existential threat because they threaten what the most honest people on the far right call white genocide. Dark. Yeah, yeah, twisted. So you just traced the way that immigration has been reformulated and reformulated as a threat. But one thing I think it's worth remembering is that it took a while for the sentiment to take an institutional form in the 80s and 90s the way it did. You're right. In the 1980s, hardcore anti-Mexican nativism, let alone civilizational Islamophobia, had not yet become a decisive force in national immigration politics. You know, and even Ronald Reagan would say things that to our ears today sound pretty reasonable. Or even radical. Even radical. I mean, he said, you don't build a nine-foot fence along the border between two friendly nations. That's something AOC could tweet. <laughs> uh, and you've mentioned Prop 187 in, in California. I mean, that sort of was that when it became institutionalized? Would you identify that as a sort of key moment? Yeah. And a big thing that happens in the 80s, the politics of which are incredibly complex because they're so divergent from where we're at today, is there is a strong sense in the 80s that immigration is a problem that needs to be solved. And the way that happens is in 1986, Reagan signed something called IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which legalizes a few million undocumented people, I think mostly Mexican, and also creates employer sanctions, i.e. like fines against penalties for employers who hire undocumented immigrants in the future. And at the time, weirdly enough, this legislation that ultimately legalizes, I think it estimated 2.7 million immigrants, is initially opposed by immigrant rights groups and supported by FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, because immigrant rights groups were so worried about the employer sanctions incentivizing discrimination against against immigrant workers that they they thought that was much worse than the legalization being offered. Whereas FAIR didn't like didn't like the legalization, but thought that employer sanctions might be the way to to end undocumented immigration. So there is a sense that immigration is is a problem that has to be dealt with that is pervasive enough in the 1980s that it leads to this this landmark law but nativists are are nowhere have nowhere near the political power that they have after the 1990s at that point one the laws employer sanctions are not are kind of toothless they don't really work i mean people continue to hire undocumented immigrants and then in 1990 the immigration act of 1990 
90 actually dramatically expands legal immigration and fares against it, and they just get steamrolled. It's not until Prop 187 that the nativist movement realized that what it's going to win on is campaigns that are just centrally about attacks on undocumented, aka illegal immigrants. And that's where they align with where mainstream politics is moving as well. Because you have, as I mentioned earlier, both Republican politicians like Pete Wilson, Democratic senators like Dianne Feinstein, and also, you know, Bill Clinton, who says in 1995, quote, our nation was built by immigrants, but we won't tolerate immigration by people whose first act is to break the law as they enter our country. And so FAIR and other anti-immigrant activists are able to benefit from the growing anti-immigrant politics in the mainstream and push it even further into the anti-immigrant right. The problem with this is that what the anti-immigrant movement really wants is to dramatically curtail legal immigration. At the end of the day, there are far more legal immigrants in the country than undocumented immigrants. And what nativists want is just almost no immigrants, period, especially not ones from outside of Europe. But the big irony that I sort of end the book by describing is that they doubled down so hard on the war on illegal immigration that was embraced by Bill Clinton, by George W. Bush, by Barack Obama, that when, it, when they finally got Donald Trump in office, the most, one of the most anti-immigrant presidents in American history, there wasn't a popular movement to restrict legal immigration because the problem has long since been defined as one of illegal so-called illegal immigrants. And so the solution become these absurd yet still racist and cruel performative gestures like the wall, which is just an extension of the same kind of border performances that have been going on, especially since Bill Clinton's presidency. You know, we've gone from a few thousand border patrol agents in the country to nearly 20,000 today. We haven't stopped illegal immigration, so-called illegal immigration, moved it around, forced people in the desert so they die. All of this is to attempt to convince the American people that the government can make life a, a life that feels uncertain and insecure, secure and certain for them. That continuously doesn't happen, even though these political leaders over and over again promise that whatever oppressive measure will do that. And so when it fails, the ante just gets up. So we now have Trump in office tying his entire presidency to this absurdly maximalist gesture of a wall across the entire southern border. I mean, I really hope that not too much of the wall gets built before he's kicked out of office. But at the end of the day, the wall is not going to stop legal immigration. He has some other things he's trying to do to slow down legal immigration, like adding this public charge rule that tries to exclude poor people. And that will no doubt make some people's lives miserable, terrorize a number of, uh, of people who thought they were going to be able to get, get citizenship here. And that's you know totally deplorable. But that's a measure that can be undone by a future president. What he has not secured and what the nativist movement has always wanted is permanent deep cuts to legal immigration. It's really interesting because that when you recognize that that's their aim, then your political calculus has to change. But so far, leaders, both Democrat and Republican, have seemed to willfully ignored that, in part because they politically benefit by having a threat that they can 
portray themselves as being tough on, right? And Clinton was the expert at this. He just seemed to completely embrace the who's tougher on immigrants kind of ethos. And he did this specifically through the drug war. I think it's important for us to dig into the fact that while this anti-immigrant movement, this nativist movement is being driven by the right wing, it becomes such a bipartisan project in the 90s. And Bill Clinton is the ultimate example of that. You just quoted him and said, you know, we won't tolerate immigration by people whose first act is to break the law as they enter our country. And this is when, with the war on drugs, the obsession with criminal activity at the border explodes and sort of dominates the public conception of, I think, what the, what the border with Mexico is about, right? It's, it's where drug smuggling happens. And you, you pointed out, an irony um, already that you you mentioned in the book, where the more the border is militarized, the more profitable drug smuggling becomes. And so the more drugs come across the border. And then the authorities are able to make ever bigger busts to show the public that they're cracking down on this immigrant-related criminal activity. So it becomes this self-propelling farce almost. It's deeply farcical. <laughs> How did that period and the war on drugs reinforce this framework of the criminal immigrant that we're still stuck with today? Well, for starters, key drug war laws passed in the 1980s specifically targeted immigrants. For example, creating this thing called a detainer, which allows federal immigration authorities to request to ask local law enforcement to hold an immigrant that they've picked up on some sort of criminal matter for them. So you have that you have that happening in the 1980s because already the drug problem is being framed as an immigration problem. It's being framed as a problem of criminal others, whether we're talking about the kind of iconic black inner city drug dealer or the Mexican cartel or Colombian cartel member pushing drugs across the border. Either way, it's about criminal racial racialized others pushing drugs into secure spaces, whether that secure space is the nation as a whole or the or the white suburb or the private home. So you have all these different kind of layers of the secure space that's being violated by by a racialized other. And the vulnerability to the sense of vulnerability to outsiders is being radically heightened by the disappearance of of manufacturing jobs and the increasing uncertainty and transformation of what work looks like in an increasingly globalized world. And this starts to become an extremely big deal with the passage of NAFTA and its implementation in 1994. And it's no coincidence that it's precisely then that we see the beginning of the buildup of border militarization, the dramatic buildup of border militarization as we know it today. We also see the construction the rise of mass incarceration during the same period in in the 1990s. So at the same time that the border is being hardened, we also have hard prison walls being constructed on the inside. So there's increasing securitization inside and outside, and both ends are about both criminals and immigrants and immigrant criminals. So it's during his, his 1996 re-election campaign that Clinton signed something called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, or IRA-IRA, that hires a bunch of thousands of new Border Patrol agents. It creates these really draconian 
new rules that are still in place today that bar deportees from lawfully reentering the country for either three or 10 years. It empowers the attorney general to build more barriers at the border. And, and this is the most critical point, it really operationalizes the criminal justice system to facilitate deportations. And so that is this notion that immigrants, that both immigrants commit crimes and that undocumented immigrants are inherently criminal because they are, after all, illegal immigrants, really consolidates in the 1990s. And so what we see across the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administration is an increasing targeting of of immigrants for for criminal actions because ordinary things that undocumented immigrants do become criminalized. Crossing the border without authorization. Those prosecutions for that rise really sharply under Bush and Obama. Enter re-entering the country without authorization is a felony. Those begin to skyrocket as well. And then you have these things that are put in place earlier that are not necessarily utilized that become operationalized later on, like something signed into law by Bill Clinton called 287G, which is the name of the statute, allows local law enforcement to be deputized as immigration agents. And that's not used until the launch of the war on terror. So Bill Clinton signs into law, doesn't use it, but it's a tool that he creates that then Bush picks up and starts allowing police and jails all over the country to be authorized to directly enforce immigration laws. Who are some of the people... What are some of the departments that get to get to have these powers? Well, departments like Sheriff Joe Arpaio's in Arizona. I mentioned earlier the the creation of of the detainer, the ability for the for federal immigration agents to request that local law enforcement hold on to to an immigrant who's been picked up on a criminal charge so that they can be picked up by immigration officials and deported. Under Obama, that becomes the the key piece of his administration's deportation program, which ends up deporting more people than any president in history. And how that works, it's a program called Secure Communities. And it's not these these high profile workplace raids that Bush engages in or the Operation Wetback from under Eisenhower with Lieutenant General Swing, which was all made for the newspaper publicity of dramatic roundups. It's this systematic opera operationalization of the criminal justice system to systematically deport huge numbers of people by linking local law enforcement databases to an ICE database so that when a fingerprint is entered in police stations all over the country, that's immediately checked against an ICE database. Those immigrants can be smoothly transferred to federal immigration and deported. And so that that's an infrastructure that was put in place beginning with the early years of the war on crime in the 1980s that reached its a really terrifying and monstrous apotheosis under under Obama. And I'm sure we'll get into this more later, but it's it's these this deportation campaign carried out by Obama that ultimately sparks a militant immigrant rights movement that helps and is continuing to help today break the bipartisan basis for the war on immigrants. So this bipartisan consensus emerges. We have Clinton. He is extremely tough on immigrants. George W. Bush Jr. then is seeking comprehensive immigration reform. He's willing to find some compromises and to legalize 
the status of some undocumented immigrants. His base refuses to meet him halfway. And Obama picks up that mission. And the issue is that there is that when the right refuses to meet either Bush or Obama halfway, both Bush and Obama respond by unilaterally cracking down on immigration. Or in Bush's case, with the 2006 Secure Fence Act, which leads to the construction of some 650 miles of fencing along the U.S.-Mexico border, what we might call a wall, he signs that to appease the right as a down payment, ostensibly, on the right suddenly coming around to immigration reform. But that doesn't happen under Bush or Obama, obviously. And it seems like this period is where it finally becomes apparent that this is a losing proposition, right? That that you can throw all of this red meat at the right-wing base. You can build hundreds of miles of border wall. You can crack down on immigrants. You can promote so-called secure communities by collaborating with these corrupt sheriffs in Arizona, but it's never going to be enough. And what begins to finally break this dynamic apart is the resurgence of an immigrant rights movement, right? So 2006, there are these massive protests that actually you say you were part of in some way, part of organizing uh, or in involved Berlin, with. Oregon. Yeah. And is before Obama came on the scene, but that is a really important turning point because it's when the left starts to push back publicly. Yeah. So the war, the war on immigrants has been so successful because it's had a bipartisan basis, but it's really beginning at the end of 2005 into 2006 that that bipartisan basis begins, doesn't totally, but begins to fracture. And it begins to get fracture in both directions, from both the left and the right. And I would say the right kind of fractures it first by passing this bill that's known as the Sensenbrenner bill in December 2000. And five, the House passes it. It's pushed by James Representative James Sensenbrenner, which would criminalize mere undocumented presence in the country, which is not, wasn't then and is not now a criminal offense. It's a civil violation. Crossing the border without authorization is a crime, but just being here, quote, illegally is not illegal <laughs> at all. Um, so if this, you overstay your visa or Exactly. Something. Yeah. You're subject to be deported if you're here without authorization, but it's not a crime that for which you can like serve jail time. That the Sensenbrenner bill proposes to change that and also to criminalize people who, quote, assist undocumented immigrants. And that makes people rightfully afraid that all kinds of service providers could suddenly be be prosecuted for 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 offering assistance to undocumented immigrants. It's after years of of this bipartisan war on immigrants, you know, moving ahead at full steam suddenly the Sensenbrenner bill is too radical. And it not only doesn't get support from uh, some moderate Republicans and is opposed by most Democrats, not only that, it prompts this massive movement in 2006. Huge protests, I think nearly a million people in Los Angeles, huge numbers in Chicago, everywhere in the country. And that's where things begin to fracture and you start to see public opinion changing then. And you start to see the American public, particularly but not exclusively Democrats, become Democratic voters, become more pro-immigrant and increasingly so over time. That polarization deepens again under Obama when Obama's deportation program both prompts this mass resistance from the left and the creation of all these sanctuary cities, not to resist Trump, he's, Trump's not president yet, to resist Obama's deportation programs. And Obama's deportation programs are infuriating 
the immigrant grassroots left on the one hand, they're also failing to appease right-wing nativists. To the contrary, they're they're inflaming them and raising raising demands. The way this plays out on in the Obama administration is is really perverse and I think I'm the first person to tell the the story in its entirety whereby basically you have these you have immigrant rights groups organizing on the ground to resist Obama's deportations. The Obama administration is trying to split the difference, protecting its own mass deportation program while saying that Arizona, which passes this infamous law called SB 1070 in 2010, while suing them in court and trying to block their law, even though their law essentially does the same thing that Obama administration programs like 287G and Secure Communities do, you have, so this immigrant rights movement is successfully establishing uh, getting cities and states to resist cooperation with with Obama's deportation program. The right then blames Obama for the sanctuary cities, basically calls them Obama's sanctuary cities, and says that Obama and liberals are creating these these haven for immigrant murderers. And when the immigrant rights movement finally forces Obama to curb his deportation program, which he does under massive pressure from the immigrant rights movement, to establish DACA, which protects many young people who came to the United States as children from deportation. They win these things. And then Trump on the campaign trail then then makes those programs his own. He says, 287, Obama's been such a da- dangerous president protecting all of these criminal immigrants. I'm going to bring back these great programs, 287G, secure communities. It's really surreal because those are Obama's core programs that he that he only curbs under massive pressure from the immigrant rights movement. It's really weird. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Princeton University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and The Debate Over Race in America by Nicholas Biucola. On February 18, 1965, An overflowing crowd packed the Cambridge Union in Cambridge, England to witness a historic televised debate between James Baldwin, the leading literary voice of the civil rights movement, and William F. Buckley Jr., a fierce critic of the movement and America's most influential conservative intellectual. The topic was, the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro and no one who has seen the debate can forget it. This is the first book to tell the full story of the event, the radically different paths that led Baldwin and Buckley into it, the controversies that followed, and how it continues to illuminate America's racial divide today. The Fire is Upon Us by Nicholas Biucola. Out now from Princeton University Press. One of the morals of this story, it is a very strange tale, is the importance of polarization. 
because what you see has is how over the decades there's been this asymmetric polarization. I mean, the the right wing base that appears in various forms through your book is really extreme and really troubling. It goes from these ecologically minded racists to the vigilantes at the border to, you know, billionaires with their think tanks. But what what they are all doing is pressuring the Republican Party and and shifting the entire national conversation as a result. And and so what is exciting about the last chapter of your book, Reaction, is it finally, there's finally seems to be a counterbalance to that. What is the moral of the story, you know, looking forward to the possibility of a, a democratic administration? I mean, we just, we see in your book the futility of trying to meet Republicans halfway. Yeah. Um, and so what, yeah, what is the the lesson? And if what they're going to do is essentially, you know, like you just said, take Obama era programs and then rewrite history so that those open border socialist Democrats have never met an immigrant they didn't like when that's completely not the case. I mean, where, I, yeah, what's, what's the message moving forward? Yeah. So right now, Bernie Sanders has one of the most radical pro-immigrant programs in history and Stephen Miller, Trump's nativist goblin <laughs> lord in the White House, uh, was recently on Fox News and being like, you know, oh, Bernie used to be a pro-American socialist. And I didn't know Stephen Miller believed in pro-American socialism, but, you know, but now he has this, you know, he's uh, now he's all for open borders and they're going to, you know, try to use that against Bernie or anyone on the left who pushes for immigrant rights. You know, this idea that, well, we're going to call you a supporter of open borders and and destroy you. You can't win an election um, being called an open borders advocate. And what the history tells us is that even Democrats pursuing the most intensely anti-immigrant, pro-border militarization politics and policies imaginable will be called the same thing. And what happens when Democrats and liberals try to play the border security game and say, okay, we're not for like full fascism like the Republicans, but we, you know, we, we do need to secure the border like we saw with Democrats in, in 2018 during the whole government shutdown debate, like, well, we do believe in border security, but Trump's wall is not an effective way to do it. When Democrats try to play the border security game, they're reaffirming a frame that is the right's frame and the right will win within it. If, if the Democrats insist on presenting immigration as a problem, then voters will continue to look to the Republican Party for a solution. The only way to, to fight that is to impose a new frame, and that frame cannot be border security or the party of law and order will win the security debate. And how about extending this to the question of militarism and war. There's one paragraph in your book going back to the war on terror's beginning in 2003, around then, that I thought was really insightful. You write, in the absence of a strong anti-war movement, what existed had fizzled by 2006. Disillusionment with war caused people to blame Islam rather than imperialism. In 2003, 75% of Americans supported the war in Iraq. In April 2008, just 36% did. The failure to win the war was recast as Muslims refusing the priceless gift of freely offered American blood and treasure. 
the United States was no longer seen as fighting a war for Iraqi liberation, but as a, but rather a civilizational struggle against Islam. Just as they did after Vietnam, conservatives blamed defeat on liberal betrayal. The empire's battlefield failure required scapegoats. I think this is a really good reminder of what anti-war movements are for, even when they fail in the big mission of stopping the war, right? That they're there to present a really important counter narrative. You know, how is this new iteration of the endless war, how does nativism play into it? And, you know, are there sort of similar insights to the ones you just gave us? Yeah. And first to just comment on the, the, the passage you read, I think this is very little recognized. The fact that, that Bush did initially frame the war on terror in these kind of liberal universalist terms as he said Islam wasn't our enemy a few times, right? That was, he was pretty clear. That was a talking point for Bush early. Yeah. And the neocons framed the war successfully as a a fight to liberate the Muslim world and public opinion shows that people believed them, that Americans believed that positive opinions amongst Republicans about Muslims skyrocketed after the September 11th attacks. And so you only really see Islamophobia as a mass right-wing political movement emerge as people become disillusioned with the war, as it sinks into permanent quagmire and loses any sense that it has some noble purpose. As you mentioned, because there's not an anti-war, a strong anti-war movement at the time, that's the way it's framed. It's framed as what was this uh, this this war to liberate Muslim people becomes a civilizational war, and that's the context that 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 kind of Trumpist foreign policy emerges in, which is not clearly at this point, as it's often been described, isolationist. Trump's foreign policy is firmly within the civil civilizational war frame, both both like the near war in terms of fighting against the, 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 you know, the so-called invasion of the border caravans and militarizing, further militarizing the southern border and stopping people with legitimate asylum, asylum claims from making them. And then, also, and then also the far war with Iran. What he opposes is precisely war on the, on the neocon terms of the early Bush administration of, in terms of like nation building and spreading democracy. He probably has some opposition to putting U.S. troops in harm's way as well. He has no problem with assassinating a foreign leader or, God forbid, bombing Tehran. That's firmly within Trump's vision of civilizational war, which requires, which involves both a fortress America guarding from invasion at its borders and strikes abroad to attack enemies Overseas, it's it's only anti-war in the sense of being opposed to to the neocon liberal universalist framing of war. Interesting. I mean, the thing is, right? I mean, that's why you say the anti-war movement is important because it provides the anti-imperialist framework. Because of course, the occupation of Iraq was never about bringing democracy to the Middle East. Just like it's also not a civilizational war with Islam. It's part of this longer history that is the history you're telling in your book that is being denied. But one thing I thought that was interesting is that that history does come up. It's like the return of the repressed. So you talk about how the anti-immigrant groups in the Southwest are obsessed with this idea of the reconquistador, right? Like to the idea that 
America is being actually recolonized, yeah, reoccupied by its original inhabitants. Um, and so there is this sense of, a, of an America at war under siege, and this historical truth kind of comes bubbling up, but can't be totally acknowledged. So, you know, ironically, they'll also attack academic departments that want to teach the actual history of, you know, America as a as a settler colonial nation. <laughs> so there's some there's a very strange paradox going on there. So this this idea emerges and becomes a very powerful one in the anti-immigrant movement that that Mexicans are engaged in a reconquista, a reconquest of the Southwest, of the Southwest that the U.S. had seized during the Mexican-American War, which which is interesting because it does seem it it does implicit at least implicitly concede that that area was conquered in the first place, which is this sort of explicit settler colonialism that ideas, liberal ideas like the nation of immigrants work to obscure. And the white supremacist shooter at the, uh, at the El Paso Walmart who, who murdered a number of Mexican Americans and, and Mexicans recently stated his politics in just the, just those terms. And in his manifesto, address the issue of whether it wasn't hypocritical of him to see Mexicans as, as, as invaders of the United States, given that white people had stolen the United States from indigenous people. And he said, basically, in his manifesto, fair point, but what I take from that is that the natives were, were weak and that we can't, and that, and that white Americans, the lesson that white Americans should learn from that is 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 to be strong against the conquest. So you see this the same idea in in Europe with this idea of of the great replacement people in in countries that for years were were colonizing the world including in settler colonialist projects which were quite literally definitionally what settler colonialism about is about replacing a native population with a colonial one. In these countries, we see those ghosts being conjured as basically the, the, the third world, the decolonized world, settler, settler colonializing the former metropole. It's all incredibly bizarre. Since we're talking about bizarre things and phantoms, how about the wall? What is the wall? It is, on the one hand, a material structure. There's hundreds of miles of it, but it's also a symbolic enterprise and you say you you have a really almost poetic riff on all the things the wall is towards the end of the book it's certainly a symptom of many problems but one thing you say is that it's it's a structure of political feeling it is a sadistic gleeful performance of transgression against political correctness i mean it's a it's a it's the assertion of the very idea that mexicans are rapists and the impropriety of that 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 shows to to all of the sort of discretion of the prior bipartisan war on immigrants and the th- the way things used to work. <laughs> well, in that sense, it's interesting because the vulgarity of it, right? Because Obama really was the deporter in chief in two thousand nine. He de- deported over four hundred thousand people. I mean, his numbers outdo Trump, but it's this the vulgarity of calling for the wall that is part of its power. I mean, Wendy Brown, the political theorist, has this book, Walled States, Waning Sovereignty, I believe it's called, or is it the reverse? But, you know, essentially that it's, it's, 
a compensation. The more insecure we feel, the more besieged and weak we feel, the more we need to shore up some physical manifestation of our strength, even if it's diluted. But, you know, I think it's an important thing to touch on and it's where you in the book. It's like, what, what are we really talking about when we talk about the wall? Yeah, because if we think of the wall as a concrete piece of security infrastructure, then what's new about Trump's wall is is less clear because the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which Biden, Clinton, Obama all voted for, Bernie voted against it, built roughly 650 miles of, of border fencing and portions of it that I've seen, such as near San Diego. I mean, it's not like a concrete wall, but it's, it's as wall-like as a fence gets. It's extremely, in some places, you know, extremely high and double or triple layered. And so there is a, there is a wall in the physical sense. There has been a wall for a long time and it has been extremely militarized. Yeah. So that's not so new unless you're really concerned about whether it's like a metal fence topped by razor wire or whether it's like brick or like if, if, if the material used in the construction is not the key question, then, then we already have a wall that Trump's is expanding, but that's not so new because there was a bit of a, a small or wall when George W. Bush took office that he dramatically expanded. So it's knock on wood. If Trump is out of office next year, he will have built less wall most likely than George W. Bush. So that's not what's new. But the idea, the idea of build the wall, as his advisors, some of his advisors put it, it was a it was an it was a mnemonic device to keep Trump to, to keep Trump on track. And then Trump used it as a device to keep his the participants in his rallies engaged. Whenever they would appear to go, grow restless, according to Trump, he would return them snap them back to attention by saying, build the wall. And the crowd would go wild. So what was it about and is it about that phrase that resonates so powerfully? Because it resonates incredibly powerfully. Like here and there, there have been these moments where Trump has attempted to kind of do full nativism and really push legislation that would permanently restrict legal immigration from the country, what the nativists really want. But when it comes down to it, and I think we'll certainly see this this year during the election, if you look back to the period leading up to the 2018 election, the midterms, what was that? It was the caravan election. And what was the caravan election about? It was about showing why we need a wall. So what is it about the wall? It's a, it's the final escalation, particularly from Bill Clinton on, we've had bipartisan political leaders promising that thousands of more border patrol agents more prisons, this escalation or that escalation, are going to solve the border crisis. And not only did they not solve the border crisis, they didn't solve the larger crisis, which is what the border crisis was always standing in for, was always a symbol of whether people understood that or not. And so all, all of Trump's predecessors escalated the border war so extremely that the only thing left was this idea of, of of literally hermetically sealing the nation to the world, which of course is not 
possible. It's not possible because we live on Earth and you can't hermetically seal an entire country. Which brings us to the problem that lies ahead. And it doesn't lie ahead, actually. The problem that is already here, the climate catastrophe. So you read at one point that nationalism is climate denialism. And I think that's a powerful slogan and indictment of nationalism. That's one reason it will always fall short. And so that underscores the necessity of an inclusive internationalist left-wing movement on the one hand. But that will require a lot more work than the alternative, which is a kind of reversion, a default to this nativism that has been building over all of these decades. And nativism in an environmental context like this is actually potentially really potent, right? Because it has the solutions, which is, you know, okay, there's going to be millions of climate refugees. We'll build a wall and keep them out. Keep militarizing the border. Keep building up this lifeboat. Keep arming the lifeboat. The climate emergency seems to me to just, you know, and it's where you in the book, but just raise the stakes of this entire conversation. What are you, what's your prognosis looking forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty fundamentally the the fork in the road is either nationalism, which includes nativism and xenophobia, but also the sort of militarism and imperialism that we see continuing today with the assassination of of Soleimani and and Trump's drive to war in Iran. It's either it's either that, which falsely represents a possibility of there being a future well-being of the United States that's somehow not embedded in the collective well-being of the world as a whole. That's one option. Or we have a more universal cross-border politics that honestly recognizes the ecological reality that we face a common ecological catastrophe that requires global cooperation to solve. And the politics of nativism and nationalism fundamentally make that impossible. So defeating far-right nativism and nationalism is going to be here and everywhere is a, a precondition for the sort of international cooperation that will be required to stop burning fossil fuels and save human civilization as we know it. It's one thing for, you know, politicians like Trump to deny the existence of climate change, or as he puts it, call it a Chinese hoax. That is a problem. But what is even an even more fundamental problem is the idea that's very much being expressed in the conflict in Iran that that the well-being of the U.S. does not depend on the well-being of the rest of the world, and that in fact the well-being of the U.S. depends on the immiseration and subjugation of the rest of the world. That's That can't go on. Well, it makes me think there's a corollary to your phrase. If nationalism is climate denialism, then defeating nationalism, xenophobia, is climate politics. Right. And it makes me actually wonder if we shouldn't dignify the phrase ecofascism with the eco because yeah. those politics actually can never be. They're ecocidal. They're ecocidal. And so we need to make that clear instead of reaffirming the idea that somehow there could be some iteration of ethno nationalist politics that create an ecologically sustainable situation. Yeah. And that's the lie that was at the heart of 
the anti-immigrant movement that John Tanton founded, John Tanton founded in 1979. He founded the contemporary anti-immigrant movement on the principle that immigrants posed an environmental threat, which suffers from the same enormous problem of some somehow believing that we have different national environments. We don't. <laughs> Related to him, he actually transitions into what I want to ask you next because I forgot to pick it up earlier, but is the gender dimension. So, yeah. of course, when you mention overpopulation, there's an implicit attention on reproduction and who's reproducing those others, right? Anxieties over sexuality, gender, and reproduction have long served as justifications for racial and economic hierarchy. You're right. And of course, there's still this fixation on anchor babies. For example, Trump has said he wants to get rid of birthright citizenship, which is connected to that. The fears of a great replacement, this has to do with control over women's bodies. And so connect, if you will, the nativist movements you're describing with their misogynistic or bring into focus the sort of patriarchal misogynistic dimensions of these nativist movements. I mean, that's to be nativist, to be fixated on creating uh, a pure stock of human beings is, is implicit that you would be dominating women in a really disgusting way. Yeah. The, this has been key to nativist politics since eugenics defined it in the early 20th century and and even before that when you think about the laws targeting asian prostitutes in the in the late 19th century or even earlier when you think about the kind of foundational race making project of of early slavery laws in the the 17th century defining slaves as those who are born to an enslaved mother. So the policing of reproductive politics has always been essential in defining what race is and who belongs in which group. And that has certainly been true in the last few decades of nativist politics. This obsession with with so-called anchor babies, i.e. undocumented women who intentionally have have children in the United States so that their family can claim right to a right to citizenship that they have no real right to according to nativists and claim access to service taxpayer funded services that they don't have a right to it's obviously a major theme as well in the whole idea of of the reconquista because the reconquista refers to sort of a two a two part invasion the first part of the invasion is the unauthorized crossing of the border. Then the second part is immigrant reproduction, immigrant childbirth, which in the case of Latinas in particular is represented as excessive. But there's a lot of attention to, amongst nativists, to the differential between Latina and white birth rates. One, the figure of the Mexican rapist, which echoes the same trope from periods where lynchings were really common, right? Where what you would have you would have who are historically the people most likely to make false rape accusations, white men <laughs> who would use that as an excuse to lynch their black neighbors. Right. So we see this as we see these tropes playing out. It's notable that there's an obsession with rape because there are many types of violent 
crime. So why does Trump emphasize in his words that his accusation that Mex is smear that Mexicans are are rapists? Well, in part because Ann Coulter dedicates multiple chapters of her book, which inspired Trump, Adios America. Multiple chapters are dedicated to Latino rape. So why this emphasis? Precisely because cross quote unquote cross racial rape in this sense, the rape, the Latino, the immigrant rape of of white Americans is a way to convey the idea that immigrants don't just pose a criminal threat to Americans, which is a major idea in the 1990s around Prop 187, and a big part of obviously the way Obama frames it. He emphasizes that he's focusing his deportations on criminal immigrants. But with Trump, this emphasis on rape allows the frame to expand from merely immigrants posing a criminal threat to immigrants posing an existential threat. Because within this framework, they pose a, th they pose a threat to the reproduction of the white race, the literal reproduction via, via childbirth of the right, white race which is the most nightmarish figuration of the notion of white genocide and the Great Replacement possible. This reminds me of a phrase or a sort of retort I would hear a lot from people when I was making what is democracy. So there's the line that Trump says that's very popular, which is, you know, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country, which has some logic to it. The other slogan that's just as common is, well, you lock your house, so you need to lock your country, right? We need a secure, highly militarized border. You don't just or let good fences, people— but make good neighbors is a right. kind of analogous one. Right. I mean, you lock your door, so why don't you lock your border? You don't just let people come in. And this—I think this is possible because the public sphere has been so decimated. People don't have an idea of a public. They, they can only understand the public sphere through the private— and it makes me think of Melinda Cooper and the way that she analyzes neoliberalism as a double movement of privatization. On the first hand, taking things out of the public sector, putting them in the private sphere where they can be profit driven, but also reaffirming the family, the patriarchal family as the site of security, right? And support. And the like off the book shock absorber for the depredations of neoliberalism. Exactly. And so I feel like there's something there. I haven't fully thought this out, but that's why the analogy works. Yes. Right. That analogy wouldn't work without decades of neoliberalism. Yes. Yeah. The American nation is, is sort of a macrocosm of the privatized American family. And what's operating on sort of like the mezzo level there is, is the suburban community. And, and so it's no coincidence that anti-immigrant movement that we're living with today really takes off in suburban California, which was also the hotbed of resistance to school busing, property taxes, all of these sorts of things beginning in the 1970s. And this is all just painfully perverse and ironic because these were the suburbs with massive government assistance that the New Deal order built. But they, they created political subjects that were ultimately just entirely amenable to the new right. In the words of Matthew Lassiter, uh, an excellent historian who I had on last year, these new identities were created for, for suburbanites, homeowner, taxpayer, and school parent status. 
And those are the identities that people organized around to resist black migration, to resist a social state that was seen as transferring wealth to, to undeserving and irresponsibly reproducing people, whether black or Latino, thus like welfare reform politics as well. And that organized at the macro scale to resist the big neighborhood integration of, of Mexican migration or Latin American migration. I don't want to live in their version of a suburban house with a white picket fence, you know? No, I mean, <laughs> that is what nativist politics envisions for, for the country as a whole. And, you know, that makes Trump dad. It's pretty fucking terrifying. There are some complexities that you don't shy away from that I think it's worth discussing a bit sure. here. One is the complicated role of trade unions. Right. In this history, right? I mean, the left has the vision of internationalism. It's a challenging thing for some unions that are focused on workplace gains or sectoral gains to embody, right? So they play a complicated uh, role. And then there's a very complex role played by business. Uh, and you, you actually point out the fact that this is something that is yet to be written. The, the full role of the private sector in the American immigration debates. So I was just wondering if you would tease those factors out a bit and, you know, how they, they make a tidy story a bit challenging. Yeah, there's, so there's business and labor as, as actors, which I'll get into, but, I, but I, what's less compli complicated is the role that anti-immigrant politics has, has played within American capitalism and empire. And even though this is a long book with a lot of complexity, my my argument with it, which I think is very thoroughly substantiated, is pretty straightforward and to the point of like banal in terms of like immigrants have been scapegoated by the for the for the problems caused by a system that benefits a few at the top, problems that are caused for for the majority at the bottom. But the the story of of the role played by by labor unions and business as actors is is complicated, and I know more about the labor story. And as you mentioned, not enough has been written on the business story, and I'm not really satisfied with what has been. So I'll start with labor, which is that one conventional story is that labor has been pretty uniformly anti-immigrant. The good news is that that's not true. That is actually a complex story. For example, you have the Knights of Labor in the late 19th century, part of the populist movement that in some ways is really radically inclusive. Black workers are, are integrated into it um, in a way that's pretty radical and progressive for the time. But then the limits of, their, uh, of how they conceive of the working class meriting solidarity is exposed by their support for Chinese exclusion, which the people who protest did its credit is passed over dissent. There is dissent against that. There are Knights of Labor who support Chinese workers. There are unions like the IWW, the Wobblies, which are extraordinarily universalists and win incredible victories by organizing diverse masses of immigrants into their union that work with the Partido Liberal Mexicano, a very radical left-wing Mexican group, to mount an insurrection in Baja California during the Mexican Revolution. That's briefly successful. You have the AFL, which is organizing kind of like a labor elite along 
craft lines and that kind of exclusionary approach unsurprisingly extends to immigration and they end up supporting not only Chinese exclusion but also they end up supporting the national origins quotas and then you but then you have the CIO which is formed as a break off of the AFL to organize the industrial working class that the AFL is not really dealing with and that industrial working class is extremely diverse and very immigrant heavy and they oppose the national origins quotas and when the AFL and CIO merge that leads the AFL CIO to support repealing them which is and they play an important role in indeed getting them repealed in 1965 and then later on you have a ton of unions who are very opposed to undocumented immigrants quote, quote unquote illegal workers because they are seen as driving down wages what union is really arguably at the lead of this anti quote illegal worker push it's the farm workers and Cesar Chavez. They form a UFW border patrol at one point and allegedly engage in some pretty violent tactics against Mexican workers who are crossing. But it ultimately becomes clear to the UFW and to Cesar Chavez that the that undocumented workers are are workers too. And they change their tune on that. And Mexican American labor and Latino labor becomes become the leading advocates of undocumented Mexican workers, which is a bit of a switch, but they do become the leading advocates. And ultimately, by by 2000, the, the labor movement as a whole changes tack and endorses legalization of undocumented workers who are becoming clearly core to the American working class, including in some of its most militant sectors, thinking about things like the Justice for Janitors strike in Los Angeles during the 1990s. And it's becoming clear to unions that immigration enforcement is being used as a tool by the boss against labor organizing and that xenophobia divides workers against each other who need to be united to take on the boss, which is the actual force that sets wages for workers. It's not undocumented immigrants who are setting wages for documented workers. So there's a complex history there. And I would say that those there's a direct line from the Wobblies through the CIO, through Latino immigrant workers today, who in 2006, in mass Mayday protests, reclaimed Mayday for the first time in decades as a workers holiday. There's a direct line of the most, the most radical or progress and progressive forces in labor also being the most pro-immigrant ones because they are the ones that have the most universal and broad conception of the working class, a conception that is necessary for a more serious confrontation with capital. And then with business, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> you know, as I mentioned earlier, grower demand for Mexican labor was critical on sort of creating this sort of Mex southwestern lacuna in early 20th century anti-immigrant politics that allowed Mexican labor to labor migration to continue even while migration from Asia was shut off and from Europe squeezed off. It's, according to a political scientist, Daniel Teichner, it was businesses' defection during the first Red Scare in the, in the late 19-teens 
that that allowed for the national origins quotas to be passed, that all the kind of anti-communist hysteria behind the national origins quotas is what pushed business to move away from defending open immigration from Europe. And it was business then switching, either switching sides or I'm not sure, or just uh, lessening their, their, their defense that allowed them to pass. And then, um, you know, in recent decades, business, various sectors of business have been major supporters of, of comprehensive immigration reform because they would rather have, they would rather have legalized workers and guest workers. I see. It's all very complicated. It's all very complicated. I mean, it makes me think of the tech sector today that is pushing for visas for highly skilled engineers in part because they don't want to pay their taxes to support the public schools that would create a robust pool of the kind of workforce that they need. So there's always, there's always got to be a caveat, right? When we're talking about the private sector, but it's, it's just one of the many sort of twisting threads through the narrative. Yeah, it's, uh, it's complicated because the deportability of undocumented immigrants serves a certain function within American capitalism. But that said, many businesses have made it very clear that they would, as as firms, prefer to have legal access to low-wage labor because there are all sorts of vulnerabilities that, depending on undocumented labor, subjects them to. So attempting to describe the role played by immigration in American political economy is one thing. What particular firms and industries want is another. And there's not, and there's surprisingly little work on either. I will, I will say my libertarian grandparents, my grandfather was a border patrol guy in Nogales actually. Wow. And um, I think at the end of it, what he would have preferred was no borders, no minimum wage. Yeah. No. And there are um, some, uh, more anti-immigrant people on the economic left, um, you know, will say, you know, basically like libertarians want open borders. And uh, while it's true that there are people, there are some individual, you know, individuals like your grandfather, and there are some people at, you know, the Cato Institute or wherever who do, who do believe that, that's never been a significant force, at least in recent decades in American politics, the way that the way that neoliberalism has been expressed in recent decades has been more mass incarceration, more border militarization, more deportation coinciding with the construction of this economic architecture built to protect mobile capital. So there is a hypothetical libertarianism that is open borders for both people and capital, but that's not that's the that's not what actually existing neoliberalism has looked like at all. Yeah. It wouldn't be pretty, I can tell you that. <laughs> My last question was just gonna be what a personal question since you never ask personal questions on the dig, which is you mentioned in one fleeting paragraph your involvement in immigrant justice movements and it sort of hints at what brought you to the subject and what allowed you to stick with it because it's a pretty heavy material. So I was just wondering about your background, how you got interested in writing this and how you understand the stakes, because, you know, we've been speaking a bit abstractly about ideology and history and laws, but I mean, this is a life, life and death issue for millions of people. Yeah, I guess I was about 23 or so when I became the coordinator of a the one staff person of a 
activist nonprofit group called the Portland Central America Solidarity Committee, which was formed in 1979 in solidarity with the Sandinista Revolution Nicaragua and had become a core part of the Central America Solidarity Movement in the 80s, supporting the FMLN in El Salvador, doing you know solidarity work in Guatemala. This older listeners will know, younger listeners may not, the Central America Solidarity Movement was one of the defining social movements of the 1980s and was, I guess, its sibling movement was the Sanctuary Movement, which sought to protect Central American immigrants from deportation and under Reagan, because Reagan was hell-bent on deporting people to El Salvador, because if he accepted that they were refugees, and that would mean that the right-wing death squad government that he was supporting was a right-wing death squad government that people had good reason to flee. So he couldn't do that. So he persecuted them and tried to kick them out of the country. So there was the solidarity movement and the sanctuary movement with the ending, with the end of the Central American civil wars, a lot of the major organizations in those movements lost steam for obvious reasons. But the group that I became the, the coordinator which was like, a, I guess, more non-hierarchical activist way to say director. But I also wasn't really in charge. People told me what to do. It was very democratic. But anyways, got involved in like cross-border labor solidarity, anti-NAFTA work, putting together, building alliances between unions in the Pacific Northwest and unions in Mexico. And while still kind of with the rise of the pink tide in the mid-2000s, doing solidarity work with with new left governments in Latin America and opposing U.S. interference. And because of all of that, when the immigrant rights movement took off in, in 2006, it felt like we as an organization with a long history fighting alongside Latin Americans, that it was like a, a straightforward struggle for us to get involved with as a, you know, and as a organization with like a, with a lot of, with a lot of Latino, especially Central American members, veterans from you know, revolutionary struggles in Central America. We shared an office with we shared an office with Vos, the day laborers organization in the city. So we we're just very embedded. So that movement in two thousand six, to me, as a twenty three, twenty four year old radical leftist, however old I was at the time, it represented the most hopeful possibility for a better country and world at a time when the left as I had known it had all but collapsed, an anti-corporate globalization movement that seemed generation-defining in the late 90s was euthanized by the launch of the War on Terror. The War on Terror was eventually, with with the war in Iraq, met with a massive anti-war movement, which then itself fell apart. And so these mass protests, to me represented the possibility of a new progressive American majority with immigrant workers at its core. And that's still precisely what it represents to me today. Because as I write in the book, demography is not destiny. It's easy to fall into, oh, like once we become a so-called minority majority country, then Republicans are, are toast. But on the other hand, it's also wrong to just throw away the demographics as destiny arguments because we live in a in a society where racism is foundational. And so the far right is not mistaken 
to believe that demographic change poses a threat to their dominance. And it does so, ironically, because their racism drives people of color, including ones whose economic interests would otherwise perhaps lead them to be Republicans. It drives them away. So the racial politics of American capitalism and empire are indeed creating profound contradictions for sustained right-wing governance in this country. And I've been hopeful since 2006 that we can figure out a way to exploit them sooner rather than later. But even more than that right now, we don't have to wait for demographic shifts because the majority are actually progressive on this issue. Yes. No, the polling would shock people. I think most Americans believe we're a far more anti-immigrant country than we are. Americans are probably more pro-immigrant now than at any time in American history. It's a happy note to end on. Yeah. I'm trying to find one. There it is. That's it. (laughs) Dan Denver, thanks for being on The Dig. Thanks for having me. Daniel Denver, that's me, is the normal host of this podcast and the author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Astra Taylor is the author, most recently, of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, the director of the film What is Democracy, and a co-founder of The Debt Collective. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that xenophobia is the secret of the impotence of the English working class, it is the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever else that has reviews, please leave a nice review because then that ostensibly introduces us to other listeners, new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Anyhow, please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 